Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. In 1665, death stalked the streets of London. The Great Plague killed a hundred thousand people, one in three of the city's inhabitants. We know something of the horror of that summer through the diaries and letters of the wealthy and the literate, men like Samuel Pepys, who kept a daily record of what he saw. But hidden in the archives of London's churches are other stories. Preserved within parish documents are the experiences of ordinary men and women who endured the worst catastrophe of their century. From these fragments, we can reconstruct the story of a single street and the people who lived in it. Cock and Key Alley in the parish of St Dunstan in the west, was squeezed into one of the many dank and dismal yards between Fleet Street and the Thames. In a cramped courtyard behind a tavern, 30 poor families lived and worked.
if we try and sort of categorise the people in Cork and Kiali, they're pretty low down the social scale, but they're not the scum. They're not the very base froth, as, as some contemporaries would have um, talked about. They're the sort of person who is just clinging, if you like, to the urban economy. William Gurney was one of those just about clinging on. He ran the alley's pub and sold groceries as a sideline to support his wife Anne and their daughter. Like most children at the time, she too would have been expected to help in the family business. John Gale was a blacksmith. He had a second job as a parish fireman and was paid for maintaining an engine for the quenching of fire to support his wife and four children. Opposite him lived Thomas Birdwhistle, one of the parish scavengers responsible for clearing away the filth in the streets. Widow Andrews fostered orphan and lame children. She was now looking after a foundling child abandoned in the street. was named Lawrence Dunstan, after the parish. John Dudley, though poor enough himself, served as a collector of arms for those even poorer. He lived with his wife, Dorothy, and had taken on extra work as a parish constable to support his daughter, Martha. Until recently, William Penny had been one of those receiving the charity that Dudley collected. As a grave maker, he'd found it hard to keep all his children. Now he was able to rent one room with his wife and their two younger sons, Edward and John. The parish paid for his eldest son, Joseph, to be his apprentice. The senior church warden of St Dunstan in the West was Henry Dorset. He was the closest thing Cock and Key Alley had to a leader. But before his election as a church official, he'd been as poor as those he now looked after. He'd taken poor relief in hard times. Now his job was to run things. He raised taxes and donations, appointed the constables who kept order, and the rakers who kept the streets clean. And above all, he kept a detailed record of how every penny of parish money was spent. These accounts, written in Henry Dorset's own hand, are the basis for this film. One has enormous respect for the church wardens who actually compile the accounts that we use. You know, these are literate individuals. They're not always keen to have their job. They're nominated because they're literate. These are people who are looking after, if you like, the, the community's welfare, the material welfare. They're recording it in meticulous detail. To many people, obviously, they're, they're boring clerks recording you know, how much a padlock cost and you know, another shilling for the, the barbed wire that, that was keeping the fence together. But that's what life's made of, those little incremental sort of bits of data. From these bald parish accounts, 
we can piece together the stories of the Gales, the Dudleys, and the Pennies. We can discover what happened to them, and to many others who left no other trace, when the Great Plague struck. Winter 1664. London was thriving. Immigration from the countryside had swelled London's population. It had trebled in size in 60 years and was now home to half a million people. London was huge. I doubt if you could walk along, I was going to say the pavement, but of course there weren't any pavements. I doubt if you could push your way along the street. Everybody pushing and shoving and full of their own business. Londoners had a reputation of walking terribly fast and not giving way to anyone. There were even more animals than people. Dirt was a fact of life. Although rakers worked hard to clear away the filth, the streets were like sewers. Disease was everywhere. One of the apothecaries in St Dunstan was Mr Drinkwater. He treated venereal disease with the moss from the skull of a dead man. Without antibiotics, even small injuries, from cuts to rotting teeth, could lead to infection and even death. People were put up with great pain in search of cures or preventatives. Mercury enemas were advised to balance the humours. But the most feared disease of all was plague. I think plague is so particularly terrifying because it's so sudden. It strikes you almost unannounced. It's also frightening because it strikes everybody. It's agonisingly painful. And the image of the disease, which is after all called the Black Death, isn't it? Uh, where it transforms the body, and anything which makes the human body appear revolting or ugly is particularly fearful. There had been no major epidemic since 1646, but no one thought plague had gone away. Londoners were very well informed about what they died from. The number of deaths in London in the city, together with their causes, were published each week. These were the bills of mortality. Every Thursday morning, the bills were delivered to the Lord Mayor's office. Copies were sold around the town for a penny a sheet. There was never any shortage of awful ways to die, but there was a special place for the disease that frightened them most, plague. It was common knowledge that a third of Europe had been wiped out during the Black Death of 300 years earlier. Cases were reported all the time, but major epidemics seemed only to hit every 20 years. 
It was now 19 years since the last great outbreak. No one really knew what caused it. Among the poor, some believed the disease was the direct result of sin. The first response would have been the hand of God was behind, providence. There's an intense sort of millennial feel to the period. Everything has meaning. Punishment for not obeying one's father, not obeying one's husband. The punishment for not saying prayers in the right way. The punishment for evil thoughts, for a whole variety of religious misdemeanors. For those interested in portents, the omens for 1665 weren't good. Astrologers predicted the arrival of a comet, traditionally a harbinger of doom. Many Londoners witnessed the arrival of the fiery star on Christmas Eve. Others searched for a more rational explanation, blaming physical contact with contaminated people, animals and cloth. Nathaniel Hodges was a physician working at the forefront of contemporary medical knowledge. The plague first came into this island by contagion and was imported to us from Holland in packs of merchandise. And it came thither from Turkey in balls of cotton or silk, which is a strange preserver of the pestilential steams. But physical contagion alone couldn't explain the way it jumped from one place to another and the speed with which it spread. Some medical opinion believed it was carried in miasma, a corrupt air that rose from the rank bowels of the earth. The belief is that if you have piles of rotting rubbish or animal excrement or any other form of filth or dirt or detritus, that will create these vapours, these miasmas. These will be inhaled by human beings and thus give you plague. Miasma, a most subtle, peculiar, insinuating, venomous, deleterious exhalation arising from the maturation of the ferment of the feces of the earth. of 1665 was very hard. The Thames froze over for the second year in a row. Dr. Hodges noted there were no cases of plague while the weather was so cold. Then with the spring thaw, in April, a single case was recorded in Covent Garden, just half a mile away from Cock and Key Alley. The Privy Council did what they always did, ordered the infected house to be shut up, the healthy imprisoned with the sick, the door marked with a red cross. It didn't work. The next week, two more cases were reported.
In Kokinkiali, loose persons and vagrants from infected Covent Garden were sent packing. There was no panic yet. Only two deaths, and those not even in the parish. But one man was more cautious. He'd seen it all before. Church warden Henry Dorset had survived the last major London epidemic. He knew at first hand what plague could do to a person, and an epidemic could do to a city. 3rd of October, 1646. Given to Henry Dorset in Futile Lane, being visited with the sickness to relieve him and his family, out of the money given by the Lord Mayor for that purpose, 10 shillings. plague in St Dunstan. But if the people weren't worried yet, the authorities were getting nervous. The plague is, is not really a medical problem for government and for civic officers. It's a problem of order. Controlling the, the sort of areas of sociability, playhouses, pubs, to make sure that the healthy and the unhealthy didn't mingle. In an attempt to halt the spread of infection, pubs were closed down. The alley lost its tavern, and William Gurney, the publican, lost part of his livelihood. The animals that filled the streets were the next to go. London is full of dogs and cats. This is long before the RSPCA or the Canine Defence League can neuter your pet. And there is a hierarchy of dogs, just as there's a hierarchy of humans. At the top, you have the greyhounds, the sporting dogs, the ladies' dogs, the butchers' dogs, the farmers' dogs. And then you have the curs, the mutts, and these are vermin. They're rather like the sick poor lying in the gutter, and they are literally to be exterminated. And a rationale for this is, of course, that the seeds of disease and the vapours of disease cling to their mangy coats. The Lord Mayor and the city aldermen ordered a wholesale massacre of dogs and cats. Dog killers employed by the parish were paid tuppence a corpse. The Chamberlain of the City of London made one payment for the killing of nearly 5,000 dogs. It is impossible to say how many were killed. Contemporaries calculated that 40,000 dogs were destroyed, and twice as many cats. But it was an ill-fated measure unwittingly ensuring the plague would spread faster and faster. 
It's ironic that all these animals are being exterminated when in fact they would be uh, able to kill the rats which are spreading the disease. In May, the Lord Mayor told every parish priest to issue the plague orders. These instructed all parishioners what they were to do if or when the plague arrived. The orders were stark and uncompromising. The response of civic government and of the national government, if you like, was knee-jerk. It responded by issuing the Book of Orders like it had in every other single plague outbreak going back to the 16th century. And the policy was pretty standard. If there's an illness, lock the people up, quarantine, 40 days, put a padlock on the door, possibly give them a little bit of care in the form of a nurse or food supplies. The master of every house, as soon as anyone in his house complaineth, shall give knowledge thereof within two hours after the said sign shall appear. The house wherein he inhabiteth shall be shut up for certain days. None be removed out of the house where he falleth sick. That every house visited be marked with a red cross of a foot long. That the constable see every house shut up and be attended with watchmen. The nurses, the watchmen, the searchers, those who went into the houses of the dead to establish whether it was plague that had killed them. Someone in every parish would have to do these jobs. Everyone knew they were dangerous. Everyone knew it was the poor who would end up doing them. But in Cock and Key Alley, some still hoped the outbreak wouldn't get any worse, that it wouldn't come into their parish, that life would go on. They were wrong. On the 23rd of May, the plague claimed its first victim in St Dunstan's. Dorothy Chessington was 12 years old. William Penny dug her grave. Her funeral was conducted in the usual formal way. Burial is very important to Londoners. I mean, it sometimes seems surprising to us that with death so present, with everybody experiencing lots of deaths in the family, that they pay quite so much attention to people being buried properly in a place that seems appropriate with the right kind of service and the right kind of attendance. The spring weather grew hotter and hotter with temperatures reaching 70 degrees Fahrenheit. The plague bacillus thrives in such conditions. Plague cases erupted throughout the city. Red crosses began to appear in the wealthier districts. The rich fled. Well, the wealthy and the well-to-do left. First of all, the court goes, and then the gentry even the people from sort of the middling sections of society, if they got somewhere to go, they left. And the physicians went because they said that they had to go with their clients, who of course were the wealthy. And a number of the parish clergy also left, and that was really thought to be improper. 
the sense of betrayal at the departure of clergy and of physicians, but particularly of preachers, must have been tremendous. Because here were people who were supposed to intervene with God, and they are abandoning their flocks. I suppose the difficulty is that the rich despise the poor. The poor are not only poor and, and you know, the very base scum, the froth, they're also carriers of disease, they're carriers of sin. So I suppose one of the problems, one of the experiences for the rich, and we can see it a little bit in some of the letters of people like Pepys and others, is that the thing you have to do is avoid the poor. Of course, if you're wealthy, you can get out. You've probably got enough income or a relative in the country, you may even have a second home, so you can flee. If you're one of the residents of Cock and Key Alley, there's very little you can do. How will you live? Where will you go? Um, if you flee London and end up in a, a, a Paris, say, in Surrey or in Middlesex, many of those localities will not want to receive the poor, marginal vagrant because they'll have to feed them. Everyone who wanted to leave needed a certificate of health to pass through city boundaries. Alley residents John and Elizabeth Davies were granted special dispensation to leave. Mrs. Davies, the wife of Mr. John Davies, one of the parish tenants, came and desired that they were to go into the country. The times hard by reason of the sickness then increasing, that this vestry would please to abate them this quarter's rent. Why they were so lucky is not recorded. No other family was allowed to leave. Some of the rich stayed on. A few noblemen, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of London all determined to stick it out. Sir John Lawrence, the Lord Mayor of London, also decided to stay, but not without taking precautions. The Venetian ambassador reported that the mayor had built an elaborate contraption in which he conducted all his business, hoping it would protect him from infected visitors. But government seemed paralyzed. Beyond issuing the plague orders, little was done. There is in one sense an abdication of responsibility by the elites during the Great Plague. And we can see these small communities turning to th their own resources to make a living, to get by. And certainly if we, if we reflect on contemporary stuff, I would hate to think the sort of social catastrophe that would take place in 20th century sophisticated culture if a quarter of the London population went down with some mysterious disease in the space of three months. By the summer, London was a different place. Some 200,000 people had fled, most of them of the better sort. Those who remained were overwhelmingly poor, increasingly frightened 
and left to look after themselves. They were, as one chronicler described them, the human fuel for an epidemic. By early June, though there was still no plague in the alley, everyone was taking precautions. Tradesmen would no longer handle money directly. Letters were aired over boiling vinegar before being opened. And families began to police themselves, searching their bodies for the telltale plague tokens. The signs were unmistakable. Dark swellings in the neck, the groin, or the armpits. The classical sign of bubonic plague is the bubo, and the bubo develops in a lymph gland that becomes uh, colonized by the bacteria and swells in response to that infection. And the bubo can reach the size of a hen's egg. It's often in the groin or under the armpit, and it can be exquisitely tender and very painful. There is also a pneumonic version of the plague that attacks the lungs. It's spread by coughs and sneezing and is the unexpectedly grisly inspiration for the famous rhyme. The nursery rhyme, Ring a Ring of Roses, uh, tells the story of pneumonic plague in a nursery rhyme form. So uh, the ring of roses refers to the purplish-coloured rash that develops on just under the skin after the development of plague. The tissue-a-tissue refers to the spread of the infection by coughing and sneezing, and the line, we all fall down, refers to the individual literally falling down and dying. It was only in the 19th century that the real source of the plague was identified. In the 1660s, no one would have thought to look for it in something as insignificant or as common as the bite of a flea. The way in which plague is transmitted from the rodent host to man is via the flea. The flea feeds on the infected rodent and the blood meal containing the bacteria become enmeshed in a clot of blood within the flea stomach. Now at that stage the flea can't digest the meal and when it subsequently feeds on another host, whether that be another rodent or whether it be man, it actually regurgitates that blood meal containing the bacteria back into the host, so there are, the bacteria are effectively injected just under the skin. On the 15th of June, it finally happened. Plague arrived in Cock and Key Alley.
The victim was the widow, Rebecca Andrews, who cared for the foundling children of the parish. But that didn't stop the plague orders being enforced against her. She was shut up in her house. And the child, Lawrence Dunstan, was locked inside with her. Paid to John Gale, the smith, for hasps, hooks, and a padlock, and fitting them on. Three shillings and tuppence. To make sure that neither Widow Andrews nor the boy Lawrence Dunstan escaped, John Dudley was appointed as watchman. He held the key to the padlock, which secured the infected house. One of the responses by civic officials was to have watchers and warders posted in, in key areas, like the corner of Fleet Street and Cock and Key Alley, to make sure nothing untoward was happening. So it's probably a little paranoid to say, but we can think of a society that really is dominated by surveillance. Everybody is watching everybody else. Although they were locked up, Lawrence Dunstan and Widow Andrews weren't entirely abandoned. The parish provided food, drink, and some basic medical care. Sarah Fletcher was one of three nurses caring for the alleys sick and dying. The plague orders allowed only one other group to enter infected houses the searchers. Once someone had died, it was their job to confirm it was plague that had killed them. Widow Briggs and Widow Manton were given the job in Cock and Key Alley. Their contact with the dead isolated them from other people. 3rd July. It was ordered that Widow Briggs, one of the searchers of deceased people, shall henceforth cohabit and dwell with Widow Manton, the other searcher. It was they who entered Widow Andrew's house and found her dead of plague. The boy was still alive. He was left locked in the house. The next day, Lawrence Dunstan, too, had died. When there was no one to inherit them, the victim's belongings were taken by brokers of the dead. Profits made by their sale 
were paid back to the parish. The money received was carefully noted by the church warden. It was used to pay apothecaries and nurses for the care of those who had nothing. Widow Andrew's few assets were soon used up. Dispersed for the widow by the order of Mr. Drinkwater, apothecary. A quart of sack, one and sixpence. For sorrow, tuppence. For bread and ale, sixpence. For the searches, two shillings. For the bearer to drink, one shilling. For a coffin, one shilling. For the grave maker, one shilling. Preventatives intended to ward off the plague were everywhere. The Royal College of Physicians printed a list of recipes that were thought to do the job, one set for the rich, one for the poor. One recipe for the richer sort called for four and twenty grams of unicorn's horn. Another prescribed three drams of laudanum, that's opium dissolved in brandy. The poor had to make do with cheaper solutions. Arsenic amulets worn on the chest or under the armpit were popular. Thomas Decker, when he's describing the Great Plague of 1603, notes that rosemary goes up in price from a shilling for a huge armful to six shillings for a tiny little bunch because people were so anxious to be able to go around holding it to their noses. Uh, this is why you have a pomander when you go out into the streets or smoke tobacco. And tobacco is, is considered an absolutely ace prophylactic, either to chew, as Samuel Pepys did, or to smoke, uh, because that drives away the miasmas. Even children were encouraged to smoke, and boys had eaten were flogged for refusing. Children were also given the alcohol and opium-based brews. If you're wealthy, you drink fine wines, a good Madeira will help you presumably get very drunk, but stave off the sort of pain. And I think we want to remember that there is huge pain. If you're suffering of the plague, you're in massive, massive pain. It's a nasty, nasty way to die. But nothing had any effect. In Kokinkiali, by late June, six had died. Widow Rebecca Andrews, Lawrence Dunstan, Anne Bradshaw, Daniel Jackson, Peter Ray, and Roger Charles. On the 28th of June, William Penny and his family went through the daily ritual of checking for the tokens.
finding the sign, he knew it wasn't just his own fate that had been sealed. His whole family would now be locked into their house alongside him, courting death. Only Joseph, his eldest son, was left outside. Someone now had to dig the parish's graves. Whereas it appeared that the house which William Penny lived in in Cockenkey Alley in this parish was visited and shut up with the sickness. He, the said Penny, being grave maker, it was ordered that he be forthwith discharged and that Joseph Penny, his son, be grave maker. Children were more vulnerable than adults. On the 19th of July, after three weeks locked in their house, the youngest Penny boys died. John was 12, Edward was eight. As their families died around them, London's poor were left to cope alone. not until three months later that the House of Lords, safe in Oxford, finally debated the plague. They came up with two proposals, that no member of the Lords should be shut up in their house, and that no plague hospital be built, as they said, near to persons of note and quality. The summer of 1665 was unbearably hot. The plague raged hotter still. Throughout August, the death toll doubled and doubled again. In Cock and Key Alley, six houses were now shut up. But the misery of those locked in put money in the pockets of those left outside. Joseph Britton and Robert Phelps received eight shillings a week as watchmen. Paid by the burial, Joseph Penny was earning more than his father had ever done. But he couldn't see his parents still alive, but still shut inside their infected house. John Dudley was also earning eight shillings a week. But in the second week of August, he took time off and brought home only a shilling. That week, his daughter, Martha, had died. 
though not of the plague. But no one in the alley earned more than John Gale, the blacksmith, and chief enforcer of the locking up order. 17th August. Paid Mr. Gale the smith for a lock and fitting it upon Mr. Birdwhistle's door. One shilling and eightpence. Neighbours imprisoned neighbours. Robert Phelps, the watchman, helped John Gale lock in Thomas Birdwhistle and his family. The Gales and the Birdwhistles had lived opposite one another for years. Until recently, when historians looked at these local parish records, we didn't see that the people doing the locking up, doing the watching, acting as the constables, enforcing the authorities' ways of controlling the plague are their very neighbours, people who are in the same social and economic condition as them, people who they meet in their alehouse, people who they meet and talk to in the street every day. But the business of locking up exposed people to danger. Three weeks after locking up the bird whistles, Gale the Smith was himself visited with the plague. Birdwhistle died four weeks after he was shut up. There's no burial record for John Gale. We do know that 20 days after he was locked in, his whole family was infected. Contemporaries knew that locking the healthy in with the sick often signed their death warrant, and some thought the policy had made things worse. This shutting up would breed a plague if there were none. Infection may have killed its thousands, but shutting up hath killed its ten thousands. Earlier in the year, when the first house was shut up in Covent Garden, neighbours had forced open the door to free those inside. But this was the only show of dissent on record. Few seem to have fought incarceration. It was an amazing self-control, amazing sort of dignity in these communities. One can imagine today if, you know, 20% of urban London population died in the space of three to four months. Th this town would be a ruin. There would be riots and God knows what. But in early modern London, these were sort of self-disciplined. Um, individuals who, who struggled and made a life. There was an alternative to the shutting up policy. Plague victims could be taken to pest houses, hospitals which effectively isolated the sick, removing them from contact with the healthy. But in London, this was rarely done. Only five pest houses were built, all outside the city walls. One in Marlebon village, despite the protests of those living there. Another in Soho's Golden Square. The city had acquired land for three more pest houses, but they were never built.
Pest houses were isolation hospitals where the victims or suspected victims of plague were taken. But the capacity in the London pest houses was really quite small. There was accommodation for about 600, which is less than 1% of those who died from plague in 1665. And that compares with some um, continental towns, such as Amsterdam, Milan, Genoa, where there was room for hundreds in individual pest houses. I think in the continent they have much stricter mechanisms much earlier on. Um, they have a much more sophisticated system of plague hospitals, for example, uh, where people are transported quite early on in the outbreaks of the disease. Now, in London, that's not done so much. The facilities aren't available. No records survive from London's pest houses, making it impossible now to judge their effectiveness as places of cure or care. But it seems likely that isolating the sick did reduce the number of healthy people exposed to infection. More pest houses and less locking up might just have reduced the death toll. As it was, unsupported by government, London's pest houses had a fearsome reputation. Most doctors having fled, pest houses were staffed by nurses. Drawn from the poorest women, they needed no qualifications, except that of being prepared to do a dangerous job. Lancing the buboes was thought to relieve the suffering. But far from being praised for taking on such life-threatening work, the nurses were blamed for the ferocious spread of the disease. These wretches, out of greediness to plunder the dead, would strangle their patients and charge it to the distemper in their throats. Others would secretly convey the pestilential taint from the sores of the infected to those who are well. The kinds of professional middle-class men who wrote narratives of the plague seem to imply that the nurses were grasping, vicious, untrustworthy, um, wicked, dangerous, extremely unpleasant. But it's very difficult to separate this rhetoric from the reality of what it would have been like to be an older, poorer, destitute woman trying to make a living in the most appalling human catastrophe that anybody could experience. And they attributed to the nurses a lot of the fears that they had about the epidemic and uh, laid on their shoulders some of the sense of social disruption that clearly all Londoners at that time had. Even the nurses treating the victims in their homes, as Sarah Fletcher did in the alley, were accused of being little better than thieves. Little is it conceived how careless most nurses are in attending the visited, and how careful they are, being possessed with rooking avarice, to watch their opportunity to ransack the houses. It is something beyond a plague to be in the hands of those dirty, ugly, unwholesome hags. This harsh judgment isn't supported by the parish records. In Cock and Key Alley, Nurse Fletcher had been caring for the sick for many years. Poor as she was, she was honest enough to declare money she'd found in the home of a plague victim, even though it amounted to more than a month's wages. 27th of July, received of Nurse Fletcher 
one pound and eight shillings, which was left in Goodman Short's trunk in Cock and Key Alley. August 1665. The number of dead reached almost 7,000 a week, each plague death marked by the letter P. The totals were swelled by the deaths not directly attributable to plague, but which nevertheless owed something to the epidemic. The numbers of people dying from all causes rise during plague. It isn't just that you add plague onto a normal total. The normal totals greatly enhanced. And that must be partly because there are undiagnosed plague deaths, but probably also because there are other diseases that are running at the same time. There are certainly some that seem to be quite similar to plague, that lots of deaths attributed to spotted fever and so on. It was suspected at the time that the official totals of plague dead were actually underestimates of the true picture. It is feared that the true number of dead this week is nearer 10,000 from the poor that cannot be taken notice of through the greatness of the number. And as all the figures were collected by the church, they did not include any Jews, Quakers or other denominations. Every day, searchers made a sweep of the alley for plague deaths. They did their best to report all the ones they knew about. But many deaths were deliberately hidden, perhaps to prevent the locking up of the victim's family. The bills often conceal plague deaths, so the figures may have been much higher than those actually recorded. After all, if you have plague in your community, you're not going to advertise the fact to the world unless you can help it. Many cases only came to light when the infected were forced to call for help. Some turned to apothecaries, who, unlike many doctors, were still prepared to venture into plague-infested streets, but not without protection. This eerie outfit was designed to ward off infection. The mask and coat were thickly waxed leather. The strange beak contained strong-smelling herbs to prevent inhaling the contagious miasma. The treatments they brought with them were even stranger. William Boghurst described his attempts to siphon out the evil from within the body. Boghurst writes about having a, a mastiff at the breast of a woman in order to protect her against the plague. And this must seem to us to be one of the wildest and weirdest ideas about disease. But in fact, it's heir to a long medieval tradition, which is that you apply an animal to uh, one of your lower extremities usually, often a decapitated pigeon or cock, and that sucks out the corrupt humours from your body through the pores and makes you fit. So there is a logic behind it, albeit one we would find rather bizarre. 
Another method recommended by the Royal College of Physicians was to try to burn out the bubo. To break the tumour, take a great onion, hollow it, put into it a fig, rue cut small, a dram of Venice treacle, put it close stocked in a wet paper and roast it in the embers. Apply it hot under the tumour. Nothing seemed to work. In William Gurney's family, all had now died except his wife, Anne. Cock and Kiali had buried 16, of whom seven were children. The apothecary, William Boghurst, described the futility of his daily efforts to save lives. I commonly dressed 40 sores in a day, held their pulses sweating in the bed half a quarter of an hour. I let one blood, commonly suffered their breathing in my face several times when they were dying, and then helped to lay them out in the coffin, and last of all, accompanying them to the grave. Hundreds were now dying every day. Thousands were shut up, waiting to die. Church bells were rung for every death. The bells were hoarse with tolling. And then, a small act of mercy. On the 12th of August, the Lord Mayor issued a proclamation. For one night, the healthy were put under curfew and the imprisoned were released. My Lord Mayor commands people to be within at nine at night, that the sick may have liberty to go abroad for air. The dying and those shut in with them were the only ones allowed out in the streets. Joseph Penny had not seen his parents since he had buried his two younger brothers 23 days before. September 1665. The city now lay silent. 
no bells rang for the dead. There die so many that the bell would hardly ever leave ringing, and so they ring not at all. On the exchange where just about everything was bought and sold, trade had all but disappeared. In the deserted streets, people were prepared to believe anything that offered hope. It was rumoured that syphilis gave immunity from the plague. Of all the common hackney prostitutes and many others of the Rouge route, there are but few missing, verifying that the plague left the rotten bodies and took the sound. A few people have this idea that if you get yourself infected with syphilis or the pox, that will prevent you from being infected by plague. And the rationale behind this is quite logical. You use one poison to drive out another poison. I think the legacy of the interregnum, the world turned upside down, would have meant that some people responded to this sort of catastrophe by saying, well, you know, stuff it, this is the end of the world. And if you're a poor person and you've got to spend all day, you know, chucking dead bodies into a graveyard, I imagine at the end of the day you probably want a bit of a drink and a smoke and you may not get out of bed too early in the morning. The rituals of life began to break down. The church warden in the neighbouring parish made a horrifying discovery behind his church. Paid to the coroner and expended when he sat about the child found dead thrown over the wall into ye churchyard. It's very dramatic when you read through the parish registers and the way in which they shift from naming the dead to saying two bodies, three bodies, a man who died in the street. It gives you a very good, a very frightening feeling about what it was like to be alive in London at that moment. The dead became nameless. Paid for the two children, five shillings. Paid for burying the boy, five shillings. Paid for burying the girl at that house, Three shillings. The bodies piled up faster than they could be buried. One of the consequences of the fact that London is so crammed is that churchyards can't get any bigger and loads of burials are happening in a very small space. And here in the churchyard of St Olaf's, we can see how high the burial ground has risen above the level of the church. So that when I'm standing in the church porchway here, the burial ground is about up to here. The epidemic was the worst that anyone could remember. At this rate, the whole of London would be dead by Christmas. Then, in September, a cause for hope. A possible preventative emerged. Fumigation. James Angier, who is a celebrated authority on fumigation. He persuades the Privy Council to let him have an experiment in High Holborn, where he burns quantities of saltpetre, brimstone and amber. And I think the stench must have been so astonishing that any rat with a vestige of, of sense mechanism in its body would have fled. And I think that kind of treatment may well have worked. 
Hearing positive reports of Angier's methods, the king ordered fumigation to be tried on a vast scale. Every six houses on each side of the way are to join together to provide one great fire before the door of the middlemost inhabitant. It was a monumental undertaking involving the whole city. Hundreds of cauldrons of coal were bought at great expense. All over London, plague was to be smoked out once and for all. Great fires burning aromatic incense blazed across the city. There was at last a reason to believe that the disease could be defeated. Surely, the weather changed. After the fires had burned for three days, the rain came. The fires were extinguished. The next night, more than 4,000 died. So many were dying that it was now impossible to keep track. Joseph Penny's father, William, died without any burial record. A man who had spent his life giving others a decent burial was carried away on a cart to be disposed of in a common pit. They take these dead carts through often very narrow streets and they have either slings or boards that they go into the house and bring people out. It's probably one of the most ghastly thoughts in the world of, of these of people going down, crying out, bring out your dead. So you really never know where your dear 
dear departed relative, friend, lover, where they were going to end up, and you were not allowed out of that house. So off they went in a dead cart to who, knew, who knows where. Before the plague, the parish of St Dunstan had a population of about 3,000. In the six weeks at the height of the plague, Joseph Penny buried 500 of his fellow parishioners in seven pits. 16th of August, four pits. 1st of September, two pits. 4th of September, Joseph Penny paid for planks to cover the pits that the visited poor were buried in. markings today to show where London's plague pits were. The mass graves were dug and filled so fast there was no time to place memorials. Rector John Gear ordered a plague pit dug in Covent Garden for four pounds and nine shillings. It took 60 man days to dig. The rector looked into it and prayed it would be the last. It was the first of five. The plague was killing faster than the corpses could be buried. London suffered the noisome stench arising from the great number of the dead. The Broadgate development, um, which uh, you know is on the northern fringe of the city of London, is on a site uh, which was called the New Churchyard in the early modern period. It was founded in 1569 to take plague burials. It was used in every successive plague and indeed in all the intervening years. Uh, and certainly a lot of people were being buried there. Every time there's been excavation on that site, both when they put through Broad Street, the overground railway line, when they dug the underground, and when they demolished the station in order to build Broadgate itself, they found large numbers of bodies. In October, Joseph Penny died. The shovels and basket that were the tools of the grave maker's trade were returned to his mother.
the plague faded as fast as it had begun. Winter was approaching. The cold was killing the plague bacillus. With the first frosts, the worst seemed to be over. Many of those who had left now returned to the city. John and Elizabeth Davis came back to the alley where they helped nurse the sick. Paid John Davis for keeping of Elizabeth Phelps who died of the visitation. But some of the refugees returned too quickly. Those who had survived the worst of the epidemic seemed to have acquired some immunity to the disease. Those who returned had none and presented the plague with a new opportunity. The number of deaths rose again in December. The city feared the disease would never relinquish its grip. But it proved to be a false alarm. There were fewer and fewer cases as winter set in. It was soon safe enough for Parliament to return. The Lord Mayor gave up his elaborate glass case. By February, when the King returned, people knew the epidemic was over. White crosses were painted over red to show that a house had been free of infection for 40 days. People emerged into the streets again. All had suffered, but the poor most of all. The editor of the only London newspaper of the time reported, I do not find this visitation to have taken away, in or about the city, any person of prime authority and command. For the people of Cock and Key Alley, 1665 was a year from which they would never recover. Twelve of the twenty houses were afflicted with plague. Eleven of the twelve were shut up. Over half the people living there died. The street's final death toll was 36 men, women and children. In many houses, half the family is swept away and in some the whole from the eldest to the youngest. Few escape with the death of but one or two. Never did so many husbands and wives die together. Never did so many parents carry their children with them to the grave. At the end of 1665, the only member of the Penny family still alive was Elizabeth. She'd lost her three sons and her husband. 
She could not carry on the family trade of grave digging. The parish did what they could for her. Henry Dorset, the church warden, bought back the tools of the grave maker's trade. Three shovels in a basket, four shillings and fourpence. 